world of e-commerce can be tricky, and that's why you need the experts to help take you to the next level. This is Delivering E-Commerce, and this is Chris Parsons. Hey, everyone. I'm Chris Parsons, the host of Delivering E-Commerce. I'm so excited, as you saw from my LinkedIn post today, to have Mitch Joel on with us. Mitch, thank you for joining us today. Oh, Chris, it's a pleasure, and it's really nice to see you again. Yeah, I was excited. I was actually telling some friends and family um, about the first book that really changed my life. Um, It was one of the ones that you wrote, Six Pixels of Separation. I remember reading that on a flight as I was going to do some, um, my first kind of public speaking in New York City uh, for for a global conference. And as I was reading that book on, on the plane, it was just like, you know what, it all started the stories that you had. And that's what I loved about that book was the storytelling that was was really connecting to me. And then I, I'm sure I used a few examples on stage and made it sound like it was my own. But uh, ultimately, <clears throat> you and I had the opportunity to meet when we were looking for a digital agency at uh, at Walmart. And um, you really resonated with me at the time. And I've been following your career ever since. Well, that's very kind of you. And yeah, Walmart was a great client of ours for, for many, many years. And uh, it was great meeting you. And anytime, you know, you always say, people say, oh, I bought your book. And I'm like, did you read it? So anytime someone read it, I'm, 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 I'm very excited about that. So thanks, Chris. Uh, no problem. So let's get right into this, Mitch. Uh, what I really start off with every time I interview a guest is I want people to understand the journeys that we go through to get to where we are in our careers, because it's not always a smooth tra- trajectory. We don't always know where we want to be when we grow up. And hell, I don't even know if e-commerce is even right for me 20 years later. But ultimately, I would love for people to hear your story. Yeah, I mean, in, in Control Altly, my second book, I talk about it, it being very squiggly. And careers often seem more understandable when we look back on them versus when you look at the, the timeline from inception to you know where we find ourselves today broadcasting here live. Um you know, my story starts in, in two parts. One part is in the late 80s when I became really passionate about being a, a music journalist and was able to have the fortune of doing that. And then in the in the early 80s, when my parents bought for us being a, a group of brothers, um, our first Atari 800 and Atari 2600 and computers. And I think that there's always been that connective tissue between technology and media in terms of what I really, really like. And so I started off my career in, in journalism. Uh, this is pre, prior to, to a real functional internet. We wound up publishing magazines at the beginning and early stages of the internet and even publishing them on the internet, you know, back at a time when hyperlinking was the new innovation that you could actually just click on a link and go to a page versus typing in the entire URL uh, in, in the Mosaic browser bar at that time. Um, I did that for many years and had multiple publications and really enjoyed doing that, the buying of advertising, the writing of the content, the marketing of it, all that, all that was, was great. Uh, and then I became the editor of uh, a community magazine here where I live in Montreal. And I was featuring young and up and coming entrepreneurs and businesses. And one of them was launching this thing called a meta search engine. And again, this is a time before Google PG. And um, it was an interesting company to be a part of because a lot of the business models that we uncovered in the process of, of growing this meta search engine are the pillars of which the things we see today in Google, Facebook, YouTube, et cetera. So I'm really proud to have pay, played a little role in the development of these ideas and in the creation of them. You don't really get any credit for that because there were a lot of players doing a lot of things at the time. But I went through the boom, bust, and echo of that first dot-com explosion. Um, 
then did a short stint uh, in, a, in a mobile content company that was based here in Montreal that was inevitably sold to a conglomerate out in, out in Asia. But again, you say mobile content, and this was a time when there wasn't even interoperability between carriers for text messaging. And so there was no smartphone, there was no mobile browser, there wasn't anything like that. So it was really, you know, my, the CEO of the company used to say that we're marketing the unmarketable at that point, and it's it's true. But they were very on point with where the world was going. And I think in a lot of my trajectory, there was a lot of being early or it not being mine, me having a little piece and taste of things, but not it being mine. Uh, after that, I did a, a short stint in a PR firm that specialized in technology. That's when I started recognizing I want to go back to being that entrepreneur. Uh, so at the time, I launched a record label. And at a similar time, I had met my business partners that I had in my last venture, which was called at the time Twist Image, which was the digital marketing agency that we met at when, when we pitched Walmart. Uh, and that business did did really great. You know, we were very, very fortunate. We built it to be one of the largest independent digital agencies in North America. We sold it to WPP, which is a large multinational communications holding company. I want to say eight years ago, seven, eight years ago. And I left that company about three years ago. But in the process of building the agency, I did a lot of professional speaking. I wrote those two books. I started my blog much earlier than most people knew what a blog was. My podcast, which still runs to this day, is probably the longest running consistently business podcast in the world. Um, and now I spend the, you know most of my time investing, advising. I'm working on a stealth startup and just talking about you know, how do we decode the future? And mm -hmm. I do that primarily through my platform, which is, again, Six Pixels of Separation, which is the name of my blog, my podcast, my first book. And so it's all still called Six Pixels. That's great. And when uh, when you talk about pre-Google, um, I got into e-commerce in 2004. Oh, so you um, know so, what it's like. <laughs> so it was, it was close. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about, everyone talks today about A-B testing and when when I got started, we talked about eight a.m. p.m. testing. So we would we would launch those anchor methods in the uh, in the morning and notice that they were wrong, and we get them right in the afternoon. So yeah. it was a.m. p.m. testing for us, which you know we we joke today about all the different things we had to go through in two thousand and you know the early two thousands with like real hard coding. And now these sites are a lot of drag and drop, and it makes it so easy. For, not easy is the wrong word, but. Uh, a little bit easier for for us marketers to to build pages. And I was on your um, six pixels of separation and watching some of the videos to get prepared for for this meeting. And you know, after your journey and you've now outside and you do a lot of public speaking, I I, I was really intrigued by the concept that you have of the great compression. Mm -hmm. um, and I was listening to that video. It's about a three to four minute clip of you doing some public speaking about it and speaking to this audience. And I would love for you to talk to my audience about this concept of the great compression, because um, obviously it's so relevant today um, where, where we're going um, after coming out of post COVID here. Yeah. I mean, that, that's really what it was is I had my standard keynote, which I still have called disrupting disruption. Mm -hmm. And, you know, March of last year when COVID really hit and everything went virtual I didn't have the same struggles that a lot of my professional speaking peers did. I had been podcasting and, and a part of digital communications since there was digital communications. Yeah. And so for me, it was more about cobbling the pieces together, figuring out how to make it interesting because speaking to the camera here is not the same as when I'm up on stage. The jokes right. don't fly the same way, the body language and all that sort of stuff. 
And I also recognized that there was this fear happening that we were heading into next Great Depression. And there's something to be said about that because, you know, we're recording this July 14th, 2021. And for all intents and purposes, if you're part of the few fortunate and privileged that have had any money in the stock market, you've done really, really well. Mm-hmm. And that's surprising. And that should be surprising overall that in a world where 4 million plus people died, where it's still, we're still having major issues with this pandemic in many parts of the world, even though here in North America, we seem to be managing, you know, some yep. better than others. And there was this thought of, what kind of recovery will this be or will it be a great depression? So where I've netted out is I believe it is a K shaped recovery. Some people are doing phenomenally well and some people are doing terribly poorly. And I think the same is said for business and people, which is kind of my struggle with it, that you have some people who really had a rough go in the past year and a half and them who have never seen more fortune fall on their shoulders. I don't, I, mean, I don't know the number for how many millionaires have been minted in North America just during the pandemic, but it's a surprising number. And with that, I had to be able to reflect on the fact, well, you've been doing this for many years, close to, you know, over 35 years. And there's no doubt that the things I was talking about when we first met, when I first started blogging at Six Pixels of Separation, 2003, 2004, that all of the things we had talked about and said, it's coming, it's coming, did come. But during the pandemic, the great compression is the fact that we digitized everyone, mm-hmm. meaning we had our, our kindergarten kids, maybe even younger, digitized if you we were fortunate enough to have online learning. And then you could make the argument as someone who had kids that it wasn't easy to do online learning with young kids, but they were there. And at the same time, we had digitized our eldest of elderly. We were sliding tablets under the door so that we could FaceTime with them. We were hooking them up with online grocery shopping. And within that, what I, what I believe happened in this great compression is the fact that we've changed our behaviors and our habits. So when I speak to, you know, my mother who's 80 plus years old, she's not going to the supermarket anymore to pick up paper towels and, and boxes of cereal. That's all being shipped now. Yeah. You know, she'll go out for some you know, fresh fruit and veg or some baked goods. But that concept of doing your groceries and carrying them and dealing with it, you know, it's gone now. It's been gone for the vast majority of us for a while, but we compressed everything and got in these age groups. And you know, secondarily, you would know this better. I think prior to the pandemic, we were what, sub 15% of all commerce was e-commerce. Yeah. It's a standard trope that you hear throughout the e-commerce world. We have this idea of 30-30, that by 2030, 30% of all commerce would be digital. And now we sit there, you know, in a time where we've beat that target by over a decade because of a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. And if you're in business and you're thinking about where to, where to play and where to do things, and you're not being able to fully acknowledge or recognize just those three things, right? Digitized all these people, commerce is so hot. Uh, we have this great compression where everybody's changed their behavior. I, I feel like there's just too many brands that are are missing the point. And you know, tangential to that, I have a very long-standing relationship with the with the folks at Shopify, mm-hmm. and watching that manifest itself, seeing so many new entrepreneurs be minted, so many more people willing to be self-employed. 
there's a story here about our behavior, not just how we buy things, but how we do things and how we work that I don't think has been fully written. And that's why I call it this idea of the great compression in a very long winded way. <laughs> no, I, I love the great compression concept. And, you know, you touch on digitizing so many generations now. And, you know, yes, we, we digitize our kids with um, tablets and, and laptops and Chromebooks, but we also left that technology to be their babysitters a great amount of time as well. So they were digitized from the morning until the evening because our lives became so different that I'm, I know parents are not necessarily proud of it, but that tablet was their half hour break. Yeah, it's a nightmare. <clears throat> we can't forget that prior to the pandemic, there were many schools of thought around whether or not we should be, um, how much screen there is screen addiction. And mm -hmm. there's no doubt that we just tossed that all to the side and said, well, forget about it. But I think within that, there's also a fragmentation we have to recognize, which is what are we doing on the screens? Right. And that's the new conversation that I think parents have to have and teachers have to have. And I think part of the, the issue that we have with we're on the screens too much is I really think it was a failure of, of education that we didn't have enough parents or teachers or schools who had a high enough bar in terms of a level of sophistication in terms of digital literacy. Mm -hmm. And so having the, having the real conversations and creating the really good habits during a pandemic when everybody was flailing around wasn't good. And again, I'm, I don't know what your experience was like. You know, I was watching some of these platforms that I'd known about for years, things like Google Classroom and more, not be misused, but just not be used in a way that is conducive to the way the platform was created to make the circumference of the, you know, the parents, the teachers, the school, and the kid really have that that 360 degree perspective of what it can do to make it easier it became almost like a copy paste mm -hmm. try to make it work because of this versus how can we use this to really create better connections and better connectivity and then you you also have a level of sophistication to no one's fault of the individual right you have some kids that you know, the parents just flipped them their old iPhones and they've been on it for years. And then you have some parents and we fall into this category where we were resistant to screens. And mm -hmm. what we, we realized early on in the pandemic is as great as it might have been as a, as a moral strategy, it was a complete failure of empowering our kid to be uh, engaged and connected. And they were left flat footed to a certain degree in terms of their digital literacy to be, to be, you know, cogent in these platforms and be able to communicate well. And no, it was just too new. So they were dealing mm -hmm. with the fact that things are online, that they're dealing with new technology, that they're not against friends who have been texting and Snapchatting and TikToking forever. And they're just discovering it. Yeah. So, so I mean, we have this conversation a lot. I, I live near a park and you know, we have kids and, and families and we talk a lot about this idea that you, know, you want to do the right thing. Like, um, I'm going to wait. You know, there was a big thing in the U.S. called wait till late. Like, don't mm -hmm. give your kid a smartphone until grade eight. Right. And I mean, it doesn't work. And it's problematic when you have kids who are socializing within that. They're doing the Minecraft thing or the Roblox thing. And then you're like, well, I don't believe in screens. I don't like it. But they're socially falling behind because that's the culture. That's what they're talking about. That's what they're doing. And so it's easy as a parent to look and go and be judgmental and be like, oh, you caved. But it's also easy to look and say, I'm trying to ensure that I'm not de-socializing my child from a social circle because they just simply don't have that access. Right, right. And, and I found that is true not only with 
parents, but also with the education system, because a lot of different schools and different markets were teaching kids quite differently. Some were just putting projects onto a Google Drive and saying, go do these projects. And some of them had the ability to be face-to-face and have some screen time with their teachers. So there was this really disconnect between you know, my, my friends in say the Milton area versus us in Fergus and how they were learning. And, um, and that doesn't anyway. even sound, that doesn't even sound so disparate. We had scenarios where, you know, some of the teachers just didn't have the connectivity. Right. So you were that getting, too. you were getting PDF documents like sent through the administration of like, here's a list to do. And, you know, the analogy is like, you're just tossing it over the fence to the parents. So then it's not only the digitization thing, but you're expecting parents to be to have some acumen around teaching, which, right. <laughs> you, know, that, you know, you really realize during this pandemic about the haves and the have nots and how we've abdicated our education to strangers. Right? It used to be that we did that as well. That's why I have kids. And so there was a lot of learnings through this. And I, again, when we talk about that compression, I think ultimately it's good. If you think about things like telemedicine, mm-hmm. if you think about things like e-commerce, I mean, the big thing in Canada, I don't know how big your Canadian audience is, Chris, but just the, just the way we finally caught up on curbside pickup up here. Right. I mean, curbside pickup was an anomaly up here versus if you go to the States, it is part of the retail environment. So there were so many things that I think created what I call during this great compression forced innovation. And my real concern and fear as we look down the barrel of what's next. And I have some very tough thoughts on what that might be. When we think about it from that perspective of of what's next and where it's going, my hope is that the businesses that added in this stuff don't start stripping it away. And unfortunately, I would say that they're, you know, for sure up here in Canada, I've seen a handful of of great national or local brands just just go backwards. And you know, now we don't need curbside pickup. Now you can come in and just creating not those bad habits, but I would say those old habits. Right. Again, like I would have hoped they would have realized these are good business lines. These are good ways to engage and capture data and understand their customers and create more ways for, for people to shop our brand and 24-7 aisle and that whole thing. And it's like, oh, we made it through. Let's go back to the other ways. We had to do that for survival, even though it's really convenient for you, Mr. Customer or Mrs. Customer. But now we're going to just take it away. And it, yeah, it, it makes was me interesting, crazy. Mitch. Last night, actually, I went for a haircut. Um, and You look great. Uh, was, thanks. I appreciate that. But the... <laughs> I had a conversation with some folks about, you know, and this is a terrible analogy, so I apologize ahead of it, but ultimately we've got this pent up demand to go back to store, back to um, the malls and and have that experience again. But ultimately it's like someone that has a child and that experience of having your first baby and the crying all the time, it's, it's a wonderful experience, but also at the same time, it's a very difficult experience for a lot of parents because it changes their whole lifestyle. And then you don't have a kid for a couple of years and you're like, okay, let's have another kid. Cause you forgot about all of that yeah, negative sure. experience, but you've now you're like, Oh, I miss it. I want to have another child. And you've just, you're, you're remembering the good times. And I feel with in-store shopping, it's the same way. I was really frustrated with a lot of the stores and the retail experience before COVID. Now I'm like, okay, I want to get back. I want to try on some clothing. I want to engage at store level. And then not half an hour into my shopping experience, I remembered what I didn't like. Sure. I, yeah. I remembered the long lineups, the rude people, the, the lack of customer service, the lack of product information at the store when I'm trying to figure out, is this shirt going to shrink when I put it into the dryer or not? And 
And it just took me 30 minutes to go. I need to go back and shop online. So I see it a bit differently. You know, the way that I have been talking about it is in this idea that online has been a primarily transactional experience. Right. Um, you know, we've been doing this a long time, but if I still throw out this idea that the framework of an e-commerce product page is 25 years old, it shouldn't shock you. It hasn't really changed that much in 25 years. It's true. Yep. And if you look at physical retail, it's social and it's more of a shopping experience. There's, there is experiences within it. And I think what happened during the pandemic is the social shopping aspect of physical had to really get quick and good at transactional. Mm-hmm. Like really good contactlessness. And again, Canada, we had a pervasiveness of tap and go. That was not as present in the U.S. Uh, but if, you know, I went to the Apple store during the pandemic and it's like, you know, sanitized. They give you their own mask. They take your temperature. You wait in a specific line. You're not touching anything in there. You're not even like pointing really. It's what do you need? They were trying to make it this transactional yeah. machine. And what happened on the other side, if you look at the people who have been you know, having exponential growth in platforms like Shopify or the DTC direct to consumer revolution, or even just brands like Nike mm-hmm. who were trying to get better at it because those stores were closed and their third party merchants were closed. They started thinking, well, what can we do to make it more experiential or shoppable or social online? And so to me, I don't see it the way you do. How I actually see it is that if those worlds are accurate the best retailers are going to really figure out how to make the online experience not only transactional, but also experiential. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to figure out for the physical spaces how to make it more transactional for the people who want it and then more experiential for those who do as well. And then the buffer between that is just the reality that we have to give it a beat. You know, Right now we're worried about inflation. We're seeing prices rise and we're seeing pent-up demand and all of these lumpy type of situations. But the truth of the matter is, and I forget which economist said it, that inflation only exists if you believe it. And it's true. If everybody believes that there's a shortage of microchips and you can't get a car, so you got to you know, increase the secondhand car market, it's going to happen. It's happening. If everyone believes that, well, it's been two years and we haven't been on vacation, that's why the hotel should charge us double the rate or whatever it might be, then that's what it is. But if everyone takes a deep breath, and takes a step back and goes, look, we're, we're going to be coming out of this. And we still are coming out of this. You know, I call it the three S's. We went into survival mode. Then we went into sustain mode. And then we were strive mode. Strive mode is where we were before the pandemic. Strive mode will be hopefully where we get to at some point. But right now in sustain mode, you know, we're going to have supply chain issues. We're going to have employee issues. There are people who were furloughed or let go or who aren't here. You have rental cars that got rid of tons of fleets. You've got, you know, Brian from Airbnb talking about the need for a million new hosts. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of things that are going to be very lumpy for the next little while. So pandemic bad strive would be lovely, but while we're in sustain mode, take a deep breath. And right. give it a chance because I think you're right. When I when I have my retail experiences now, they're very subpar, but they're subpar to a world where we were striving and we didn't recognize it. Mm-hmm. And they're subpar <clears throat> in a world where you're seeing how many supply chain components there are to get that thing to that shelf. Um, so I have a bit I have a bit more of a breath and a patience for this moment. But I do believe, getting back to what you're saying, that there is a pent-up demand, but I don't think it's a pent-up demand. I think what we're actually seeing is a return to normal. And so the people who talk about this idea of a new normal, 
I'm not on that boat. I was for a little bit, but I'm off that boat now. In fact, even when it comes like right now, we're still talking about back to work. I think it's going to be exactly the way it was. I think there'll be a handful of people who figured out Zoom and all, but the vast majority will, it, it will just go back to the way it was. I know people think I'm crazy, but look at concerts, look at bars, look at restaurants, look at travel, look at every other industry that is lighting up now. Right. It doesn't look any different than it did before the pandemic. In fact, it looks exactly like it looked before the pandemic. So why are we to think that work will be the different one? I just don't know if I see that right now. No, I, I, I agree. I think even here at Home Hardware, we're, we haven't put a position out yet on whether we want people coming back into office or if it's going to be a hybrid of two or three days at home and two days here at the office. But ultimately, yet we're investing in redoing the office and putting in new desks. So if we're making those investments, then the kind of hint is that people are going to be coming back here. And now we'll just have to figure out what's that percentage of time that's being spent yeah. at home. And I mean, and the truth is that, again, I'm, I happen to be fortunate and privileged enough to invest in some commercial real estate. And what we're seeing with the bigger companies they, is they just want more space. I think they were just realizing that they had too many people on top of each other, like too many people per square foot. Right. And, and this shift away from open office isn't a pandemic thing to stop the scourge of COVID-19 rattling us again. It's a reality, a, a reaction a realization that it probably wasn't great. You know, if someone has a private issue with their family or a doctor and they're sitting in a cube of six people. Yeah. I don't know how many people are going to be working or speaking freely or feel like they're constantly being surveilled. So a lot of the changes I also think are reaction, not just to, you know, social distancing, a meter or two, whatever it might be, but just this sensical realization that we were just cramming them in too much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hopefully in a lot of the organizations we keep up the, the cleaning routine for associates past the pandemic as well, because obviously we've seen the amount of cold and flu decline so much because I'm still coming in the office every day. I was sick at least twice a year with a, a flu because people would come into the office sick. And, and now because we're cleaning the environment so much more frequently um, it really has made a difference in in the overall health of, of yeah, our staff. And, and I think our <clears throat> habits did change. I mean, how many times did I get on a flight because I had a speech and I had a really bad cold? Right. And the answer is a lot, even fever, really sick. Mm. Now I'll put on a mask. Right. It's not, you know, for me, it's not, it's look, we're Canadian. So it definitely wasn't as politicized as other parts in the world. But to, when I reflect on it, I'm thinking, my stomach is off. I'm uh, feeling right. Like, why not just put on a mask this way? I'm protecting myself and, and, and potentially others. Yeah. And so again, all, all of this stuff, you know, there's new habits. There's definitely new habits, but I do think it's going to like that part I think is changed, but that's a positive change. You know, my, yeah. my running joke is I can't believe how infrequently I washed my hands. And let me tell you, Chris, I wash my hands a lot, right. but it, you know, when I think about my habits and how they've changed, you're more aware I mean, the, the running joke when COVID hit that I, I used to always laugh at, they, people posted on Facebook or Twitter was, uh, you know, I can't stop touching my face or I can't believe how many times I touched my face. And it's like for years, I've been like, don't touch your face. Here right. we are. <laughs> we are sensitive to it because yeah. so many people you can even see on, on meetings. Cause I, I ask my team to have their videos on when we're having teams meetings while they're working from home. Um, one, because I think it's just a nice way to connect with each other instead of just being this icon on a screen. But so we can see body language and reactions to comments. And but then you do see people starting to touch their face and then they right away, they pull their hand away because they're they're just naturally thinking about it now, which is which is good. 
Yeah, um, I'm on they, the fence about the, I'm on the fence about the whole like put our screens on. I think we we worked really functional for many years having these capabilities, but only using the phone. And I think there's a lot of issues with uh, screens, people's mm-hmm. level of comfort. I think there's a lot of issues around body language. I mean, I would really refer people to look at the work that Mark Bowden is doing around this because this is a really strange square and you're only seeing like an upper torso, but the other stuff that you're not seeing, but your body is, is physiologically reacting to is the fact that like, you know, right now I didn't put up my proper lighting for you or anything. And so I look real probably pasty and white. And the truth is that even though like you're laughing when I say that, but it is impacting how you perceive my messaging. Right. If, if the camera was an angled, right, like looking up my nose, it, it, you would perceive me a certain way if it was facing down. There's a lot of dynamics of, of just how the setup is here. Even the mic, even I would say like normally when I do my, my virtual keynote, I don't have my headphones on. I have in-ear monitors because even just this, you may not recognize it, but you know, you can't speak to someone who's wearing headphones. Right? Right. Not, they're not listening. That's, the, yeah. that's how our body reacts. So I'm also quickly changing all of my zoom and teams to phone only unless it's very imperative that we share a document now with that what an amazing time to be alive that we can have a team meeting and somebody can fire up a shared document and we can add to it together right. and as people are talking so we're not all taking notes separately and wondering who did what we're actively listening to each other and seeing each other but at the same time we're contributing to this document that we can then all have equally Versus who said that? What did Chris say? Did you take that? No, I forgot. That part of, of of really working together, I think, has been an awakening moment. So to me, it's less important that we see each other. I mean, for this, obviously, it is, it's, a, it's a podcast and there's yeah. video going out. But if we're having a meeting, it's always important that we're sharing. We have a shared document. I feel like that has been like the greatest thing ever. Yeah, some of the collaboration tools have come a long way over the yeah. last 18 months. I agree with that. And it does it does make it easier. I think Miro is one of the ones that my team leverages and yeah. uh, quite enjoys. Um, I want to get into um, another video that I saw, and you were talking about the concept of microtransactions. Sure. Uh, and I really enjoyed this this particular speech, and, and not only about the actual checkout and that physical purchase, but that journey along the way of how many microtransactions actually happen. So can you speak to that, Mitch? Yeah, I'd be happy. I mean, somebody asked me not long ago, like, how many downloads does your podcast get? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't look at the analytics. And they were like, what? Like digital guy doesn't look at the, and I'm like, I don't, like, I don't, because it's not, to me, it's not about how many downloads I'm getting per episode or overall over a year. It's about the fact that I'm able to corner someone really smart, have a conversation and then share that with the world. I don't really care it sounds crazy. Maybe it's to my detriment why why that is. But it led me down this path, and this is going back many years now, when we got very excited about big data. Mm-hmm. The idea that big data is going to come in, we're going to have multiple databases with their own set of data that would be able to speak to one another, the speed and propensity of which human beings never could, and we're going to find all these incredible insights. It's going to lead to new marketing, and it's going to change the world. And I was thinking about that in relation to the fact that I don't like to look at my metrics. And what I realized is we talk about what's the macro, what's the transaction? Like people buy something at home hardware would be an example. But what are the micro transactions that got them there? Was it a YouTube video, a Facebook? Was it a word of mouth? Was it a flyer in the mailbox? And to me, just thinking about the fact that we have all these different touch points, some of them are brand and story based, some of them are direct response. And that we can create these different journeys or paths or whatever you want to call them. Interesting. 
But what would be more interesting, besides knowing how many people clicked or came or visited or redeemed or did something, wouldn't it be more interesting to know what are the most powerful microtransactions? And more importantly, what are the fewest amount of microtransactions that lead to the macro transaction? Right. And yeah. it, to me, it, it was like, a, like my shoulders were loosened because it got away from this, you need to be an analytics ninja and more into this framework of, are we actually doing the right touch points and engaging with people? And if we are, we'll see a reaction. And a lot of this, this thinking came from Avinash Kaushik, who was forever the analytics evangelist at Google. He's still there and he's more brilliant. He knows more about analytics. He's forgotten more about analytics than I'll ever even know. But this idea that he would be able to analyze a website and let you know that if somebody watched this video and signed up to this newsletter, that would give you a certain level of conversion over all this crazy money you're spending on advertising, for example. Right. And I think that those, those things have just become more pervasive now because we had a moment in time where we shifted consumer behavior so dramatically. And that at the same time, we had a company like Shopify really pushing this idea even further and Amazon. So that's how I see micro transactions. I see them as like, maybe you shouldn't be on Twitter. Like maybe tweets are doing absolutely nothing for you. Do you know? Yeah. Measure it. Yeah. Well, not even measure it. Like how transactional is it? Like, is, and, and by the way, you can measure it against tr transactions that are story-based. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how much, how many more people like our brand versus that, that, that is your macro transaction. You know, people to like the brand might be the macro transaction. So. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love that concept, and I hope um, my listeners actually go and visit your website of Six Pixels and uh, learn some more because ultimately these are the type of nuggets that I think our retailers and you and I have different perspectives on things, and that's okay. For sure, um, but for ultimately sure. You're much smarter least, than I am. For sure. <laughs> no, but what I like about it is it allows you know you sit there and reflect, and I'll go back and I'll watch this this uh, interview four times, and each time I listen to it will help me gain different perspectives, different views on things, because ultimately what I want from my audience is, is to be able to be open-minded and think, you know, like a lot of people, like you said, think that things might be a new normal. And you're saying, maybe we're going to go back to the normal. Well, let's have that debate. Let's think about that. Let's yeah. look at trends in other countries and how they're coming out of this maybe faster than us or slower than us and, and glean what we can from, from all of those learnings. So that's great. Mitch, how can folks get a hold of you if they're, they're looking to connect? Well, I, one is I appreciate your time, Chris. I mean, it's a great conversation and know that I don't ever feel like I'm, I'm the guest. I feel like it's a conversation 100%. and that your questions change my thinking too. So a lot of the stuff that I'm saying now has been an evolution of other people asking me great questions that got me here. So asking great questions gets a result of a conversation or debate or discourse. And I'm, I'm really open to it. And the, the best place to find me is just go to sixpixels.com or mitchjoel.com. I'm really easy to find and to connect to. That's awesome. And then I know you were doing um, a lot of public speaking. Has that uh, journey started back opening up for you? Yeah, I mean, it never really stopped because, again, my level of comfort of doing them virtually has been mm -hmm. fine. Um, and, and yeah, the world is opening up now. As you know, up here in Canada, the, the, the distribution of the vaccines took a while, but now we're doing better than most parts in the world. Um, and I'm ready to go back so long as it's it's genuinely safe. And what I mean to sit by safe is that I'm I'm making sure that I'm not I'm not impeding on someone else's right. world. 
So, so yeah, the answer is it's getting busy and there's a lot of demand and it's going to be, I think a very exciting few years with the exception of, or, or understanding that it'll be lumpy as well. Great. So Mitch, I appreciate our time today. I don't want to take up more of it for you. I know it's middle of the day and we both have a ton of other opportunities and engagements to get to. Uh, I, I really greatly appreciate seeing you again. I look forward to connecting with you in the future. Thank you so much for today's opportunity to interview you. And I hope my audience really does reach out and whether they connect with you or not, um, go and pick up one of your, your books that you've done. Are you coming out with a new book, by the way, at any point? Yeah, sometime. We'll see. Sometime. No pressure. <laughs> Creating a lot of content here, Chris. We're busy. <laughs> yeah, great. Well, I would look forward to that third edition. That would be great. Um, and if my audience wants to discover more of you, I encourage them to do that because um, you've been a thought leader in our industry for a long time, and I greatly appreciate being able to know you. Well, it's, a, it's been a pleasure, Chris, again. Thanks again. You've been listening to Delivering E-Commerce. It's our passion to have on leaders and suppliers in e-commerce from around the globe, setting you and your strategy up for the next level. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review, and we'll be back soon. Connect with Chris on LinkedIn at Chris Parsons on LinkedIn and Spotify at Delivering E-Commerce or on YouTube at Chris Parsons Delivering E-Commerce. Till next time, this is Delivering E-Commerce.